Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today we're talking energy and industrials. It's Thursday, 12th of October. I'm going to be discussing the oil and gas U.S. versus international investment opportunities. And join me in the studios, Motley Fool contributor and expert on all things oil and gas, Tyler Crow. Tyler, I hi. really hate it when people call me an expert in something because it puts like this Sexy weight. There's this weight that they think <laughs> it's credible, and I don't know. It scares me a little bit. Uh, well, you're joining us all the way, or you've come here to the studio all the way from Malawi via Italy. I have, yeah. It's a little bit of a long journey. You know, my wife and I moved to Malawi for her work, mm-hmm. working for uh, U.S. State Department, and it's been a pretty fun trip so far. Mm-hmm. Sounds it, and yeah. it's, it's managed to be hotter in D.C. today than it was. It, I was actually surprised. I got off the plane here <laughs> in the United States, and I was like, "Oh, it's going to be nice fall weather." And I get here, I'm like, man, it's hotter than I live. I live in equatorial Africa. <laughs> well, I'm from a country that has summer coats and winter coats, so this is just too much of a shock to the system. Um, so today, uh, the idea for the show was really kicked off by a great listener email from Cam Kane. So th- Cam, thank you very much um, for writing into us. Uh, he asked if we could do an energy podcast show looking further east than usual, uh, maybe for American listeners looking to diversify, diversify sorry, their portfolios across uh, different regions um, and kind of entertain our European listeners because not everybody that listens to the show is from America. Um, so that is what we're going to do. We'll be discussing why there seems to be so many more energy investment opportunities in the US, some challenges in investing overseas in overseas energy companies, and a few stocks with international flair that you might want to consider. So first off, the US market has changed a hell of a lot over the last 10 years. American shale producers really upended the traditional market by upping production in the face of lower prices. Um, the method that unlocked all of this, as everybody I'm sure knows, is fracking. Uh, the method which involves hor- drilling horizontally into shale formations, shooting gas and liquid solutions into the rock at high pressure, creates uh, fractures and uh, the unlocked gas and oil is uh, forced to the surface. So we all know that this influx led to a crash in oil markets in 2014. Global oil and gas companies have cut expenditure about 40%. They cut almost half a million workers. It transformed the shape of the oil industry globally. Still is. Yes. Um, so it's transformed. Why do you think the U.S. market is particularly ripe for investment? Well, and, and it's not just shale. This has been something about the United States market that has existed for decades. But one of the reasons that you see uh, the United States market kind of take off with so many smaller companies, uh, independent companies, something that you don't see as much uh, in Europe, Africa, and Asia, it has a lot to do with the regulato- regulatory framework that we have here in the United States. Um, Let's just start, obviously, with the oil and gas. A great example is land rights. So, in the United States of America, if you own a plot of land, let's say I'm a farmer in Texas, and I own, you know, 100 acres, maybe even more, and with oil and gas land rights, I own all the mineral rights that exist below my land. And so, uh, an oil company can come to me with a contract that says, we will pay you X amount of dollars to for us to be able to extract oil off of your land. Now, that isn't necessarily the case in a lot of other countries, uh, especially in Europe, where mineral rights are not individual landowners' property. It's actually a negotiation between the state and the the company itself. And so, with that, you you have the tendency when something 
wants to happen, like drilling in a particular area, there's a few more stakeholders that are involved that have a say in what happens versus here in the United States. You know, that oil company can walk right up to that farmer, he signs the, the thing, and you can start drilling the next day if you really mm-hmm. wanted to. So you have that, that speed that makes it a little bit easier, a little bit, uh, it facilitates growth in that sort of way. Uh, another thing you could also look at is the natural gas market by itself. So before we had oil uh, coming from fracking, we had natural gas. And one of the reasons that that was actually possible is that uh, natural gas in the United States is actually traded as a commodity completely separate from oil. Whereas, if you look at many other places around the world, it is linked in some sort of indexing relative to the price of oil. Typically, it's done on the energy equivalent, which is about, if I remember my math right, it's about six uh, units of natural gas, which is what, uh, a thousand cubic feet of natural gas, is equivalent to one barrel of oil on a uh, British thermal unit or BTU basis. So on that energy equivalent, that's normally the multiplier that is given to natural gas, and then that's how they set oil prices. And so if you look at that, even today with oil at $50 a barrel, with that kind of indexing in place, you're looking at $657 per uh, 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas compared to what the price is today. I'm going to guess I haven't checked it this morning. My apologies. It's somewhere from the $2.50 range to $3 range. So you can see right there that's there's a massive arbitrage opportunity in, in that. And when you have cheap natural gas, it, it makes people want to use it. And then obviously, more people are going to go drill for it. Mm-hmm. No, excellent. I think a lot of people don't uh, consider those factors. And then the other thing that you mentioned is kind of like just physically more opportunity, the number of opportunities. And I think that the entire market, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of heading towards more specialized uh, people with more expertise in different, uh, you know, subsea drilling or whatever it may be. And then they're kind of connecting up to, to form some kind of supply chain. Absolutely. And, you know, when especially when you look at something like uh, shale drilling in the United States. Basically, a lot of the independent oil and gas producers that you have in the United States are going to be either land-based specialist or off- offshore specialist. A great example would be somebody like you know ConocoPhillips or those larger um, independent oil and gas companies that we have. For years, they were diversified across several different production portfolios where they had conventional, they had deep water, we had shale, and most of them, in some way or another, have tried to orient themselves towards a specialty. I think uh, EOG Resource was the best example of that, where they shed almost all of their offshore uh, production capacity and went to a pure shale producer. And the smaller you get, obviously, it's going to be harder and harder and harder to own multiple platforms of drilling and have multiple uh levels of expertise. And so the smaller you get, you're obviously going to get your specialists. And that that also applies when you come to your oil services companies where you're going to get uh, fracking specialists, you're going to get deep deep water specialists. And when you get that level of specificity, you're obviously going to get a much more diverse investment opportunity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Well, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about the complexity in investing in overseas energy companies. I mean, you've already touched on it, but we have some more points. Uh, But first, uh, we want to thank Slack for supporting Industry Focus. Slack is a messaging app which brings all your team's communications together, giving everyone a shared workspace where conversations are organized and accessible. It's so easy to search and makes finding important messages, reports and notifications much easier than email. Slack has vastly reduced the amount of emails I send 
while increasing the quality of communication I have with my colleagues. Staying in regular contact is a must here at full.com and Slack's seamless, Slack seamless mobile app allows me to pick up where I left off when I'm on the move. We have uh, added complexity of having a lot of contractors and people who work from home. Tyler, you're a prime example of this. You're on a different continent to us. And uh, Slack kind of enables me to just shoot a message whenever I need to. You know, as long as we're on a relatively close time frame because yeah. of the time difference, you know, I start getting you guys a little bit in the afternoon, we can talk for hours. And mm-hmm. it's basically like real-time conversation. It's It actually, without products like Slack and things like that, the the ability for contractors like we have at the Molly Fool, I don't think it would be as possible to do it the way we've been able to do it over the last several years. Absolutely. Um, One of the other invaluable things I use all the time is the drag and drop file sharing that works with apps like Google Drive and Salesforce. And our Slack system is really tailored to our company with apps that we use regularly. And there are now over a thousand apps to choose from. So I'm confident that you will find the apps that you use regularly with your company too. Thank you very much to Slack for supporting the show. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. That's slack.com. So, the U.S. market looks solid. Uh, as we've discussed, there's some regulatory reasons that it's uh, hyper-competitive, but uh, some of our listeners may not be in the U.K., as we talked about, and there may be some American investors looking for foreign opportunities in this segment. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the challenges of investing in overseas oil and gas? Well, obviously, you know, aside from the market-based things of maybe having to buy something on, on over-the-counter, an ADR yeah. or something like that, uh, one of the... Th- it depends, uh, of course, on the markets, but... <laughs> Excuse me. One sec. Uh, one of the most obvious things that we have you see uh, when it comes to uh, investing in overseas uh, inv- opportunities is that a lot of times a, a highly regulated uh, industry such as oil and gas has a tendency to be closely t- much more closely tied with what the government wants it to do. Uh, I think you it doesn't you don't have to look very far to see examples of this. You have Saudi Aramco in Saudi Arabia. You have Petrobras in Brazil, Pemex in Mexico. These are companies that are kind of these hybrids of publicly traded investments and arms uh, state-owned companies where they kind of have to be servants of two masters where you know, from a from a public investment thing that you uh, side, excuse me, you have to develop a rate of return. You actually have to make it worthwhile for shareholders to want to be involved with it. And that normally means efficiency, uh, low cost, things like that. Whereas on the state side, sometimes the objective may be a little different. It may be employment, Mm -hmm. things like that, or maybe producing more at a lower price just to make sure that the citizens of the country have adequate oil supplies when it may not necessarily be in the best interest of the business. And so when a co- when a company, for example, a Petrobras or the upcoming Saudi Aramco IPO that's supposed to be happening, I don't we had been talking about it for several months, but now all of a sudden it's gotten very quiet. So it's hard to tell when that's going to happen. Um, when those sort of investments happen, you really have to wonder what is management's true objective. And if it's not 100% aligned with shareholders, it's a little bit more difficult to have the confidence that when they're making capital allocation decisions, that it's going to be in your best interest as an investor. And and that said, too, if you are looking to internationally diversify, you, you don't necessarily have to invest in companies that are outside the United States, because there are a lot of companies that are US-based companies that are making uh, their investments in the international markets. And I think a great example of that is Chenier Energy. Uh, they are 
the first company in the United States that's going to export liquefied natural gas from the United States. And even though they're looking to use that cheap natural gas from the United States as the opportunity, all of their growth and customer demand is coming from international markets. And so, their, their play is more on the growing demand for hydrocarbons and you know, energy outside of the United States. And there's a, a wide range of companies that you can look at where you may be investing in an American market, but your clear uh, objective is on international uh, customer base. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you touched on the Saudi Aramco IPO, which um, possibly is going to be delayed till 2019 now. They're, just to, to give listeners an idea of this, they're selling a 5% stake is where they're floating. We don't know if it's going to be on the London Stock Exchange uh, or New York Stock Exchange in addition to their domestic market. Yeah, the two exchanges seem to be doing this nice little waltz of, <laughs> what can you give us to put, it, put us on your exchange? Uh-huh. Um, so they're hoping to raise $100 billion for 5%, mm-hmm. um, which is just astronomical. The record at the minute is with Alibaba, which was $25 billion, I believe. Um, so we're talking about huge valuations here. Um, Primarily because of the the issues that you raise with the fact that it's you know it's a state run organization mm-hmm. and they're looking to add to you know their income, um, so it's not necessarily uh, geared towards a traditional what a traditional company model is that we expect. Um, so you mentioned kind of companies that people can get into in the U.S. that gives them some exposure internationally. What if you were to peg uh, kind of two or three of these? What what would you give? Um, so. All right, so I have three, and I think one of them. Some people will say I'm cheating because they're Canadian <laughs> and and not non-American, and they're even traded on the American exchange. But three companies that have actually looked pretty interesting to me that are non-U.S. companies uh, working in the in the energy markets is uh, Brookfield Renewable Partners. They are a Canadian company that is a subsidiary of the larger Brookfield Asset Management. They're one of the largest asset and hard asset uh, managers in the world. And this is a company that specifically works with uh, renewable assets. Most of that today is hydroelectric power and with a little bit of wind power kind of sprinkled in there as well. Um, they're, they're a very interesting company. You know, um, instead of a lot of these companies as of late that have been these renewable power holding companies, it's one of those things where everybody's looking at those to grow at double-digit clips quarter after quarter after quarter, and you know everything can be forgiven as long as you're growing really fast. Brookfield has taken a very, I guess you could say, contrarian approach to this, where they're very mu- they look for basically distressed opportunities and try to invest when the market for a certain asset looks absolutely miserable. And a great example of that was earlier, I believe it was earlier this year or late last year, they purchased um, Terraform Power and Terraform Global, which were yield co-companies from the now bankrupt Sun Edison. They were uh, two assets that were mostly solar power, um, uh, sorry, utility-scale power generating facilities uh, using solar power. Uh, Terraform Global has a much larger footprint uh, internationally. They have decent-sized footprint in India and China, whereas Terraform Power is mostly United States-based. And the idea here was, is even though it was a relatively complex transaction, which something a company only as large as Brookfield Asset Management and its subsidiaries could actually handle, it was an extremely distressed asset compared to the market rates that a lot of solar panel facilities are selling for today. Mm-hmm. 
And so you have examples like that. You know, they were one of the ones that really jumped in on hydropower a few years ago when assets were selling for extremely cheap. And by taking this distressed asset approach, you know, they've been able to keep a much better balance sheet because their cost of capital is a little, um, sorry, their their cost for acquisition is much lower than uh, for other people, keeping an investment grade. And, you know, when you're getting a 5% dividend yield on something like that, it looks pretty attractive. Uh, another one I've looked at is Danish company Vestas Wind Systems, uh, not on the American exchanges with a no, um, uh, ADR or anything like that. So, if you're willing to go onto the pink sheets and go look for something as an American, uh, Vestas is, is pretty interesting. Uh, over the past three or four years, the company has done a rather remarkable turnaround of what pre- previously very low margins, wasn't doing that great. But at the same time, three or four years ago, wind power hadn't quite come into itself like it has over the past couple of years, where wind today is actually the lowest uh, cost option for power uh, globally on a per kilowatt hour basis, um, using based on research uh, bank Lazard, who does an annual study on this for the past few years. And now that they are the lowest, you've seen an incredible growth for Vestas, not just in orders revenue, but operating margins have grown to into the double-digit range. They're growing uh, about $1.5 billion in free cash flow annually, with a and about 20% of their market cash cap in cash with a relatively low debt balance. So, when if you're looking at for somebody in a high-growth industry that hasn't kind of levered themselves to the hilt. I really like Vestas. And then, last one, uh, anybody who heard me a couple of years ago when I used to do this podcast pretty regularly, uh, I recommended Total a lot, and I have no problem saying that again. Nope, I agree with you. They're uh, one of the big five when it comes to integrated oil and gas companies. Uh, as of late, they went through this very, I guess you could say, opportunistic timing thing, where uh 2014, 2015, 2016 was a period where they were bringing a lot of their new projects online, and so their capital costs were or capital commitments were going down just as the market was starting to tank. So they weren't stuck trying to pay for all of these projects for, in comparison to somebody like Chevron with their mm-hmm. major Australian projects and things like that. So they were able to reduce capital expenditures without sacrificing a lot of growth. They've been able to grow oil production at a 5 to 9% clip over the past two years, while at the same time actually doing it profitably, which is something amazingly in over the past couple of years and has become the highest rate of return on equity in the integrated oil and gas space as of late. Sprinkle on that their investments in renewable energy. They own two-thirds of American solar panel manufacturer SunPower, and you know if you're looking for somebody in the oil and gas space to finally make that transition to other uh, energy sources, I think Total looks like the best bet. Yeah, I agree with you. I think they they've been in the press recently because they um, they bought Musk. Um, am I pronouncing that correctly? That's another Maersk, name. Maersk. I, I've never figured that one out um, myself. Yeah. So I I mean it, it, I worked briefly in North Sea oil and uh, I know that there was like a mass exodus from the uh, from the area but uh, Musk actually has 80% of its production in North Sea now they're obviously they're, they're realizing that they can extract profitably from the region so it's interesting to see them double down on the region without hesitation 7.45 billion dollars uh, in that deal including debt um, and as you said I think I completely agree I think that they can withstand lower oil and gas prices for a longer period of time and mm. that's really been their strategy and they've they've delivered on that yeah, and it's it's interesting to see them making these big acquisitions now because there was always this talk 
let's say like 2015 when oil prices were starting to decline, where analysts, Wall Street people were always saying, why isn't the big integrated oil and gas companies going out and spending money? Like, why aren't they making those acquisitions, the consolidation of the market that so many were expecting? And if you looked at Total, they were like, we're just going to kind of keep things quiet for a little while. We're going to not take on too much debt. We want to basically get what we have done. And now that they're in a position where oil, the the oil price has steadied right around $50, they have been able to generate a decent return and pay to, and get in a relatively comfortable debt range. Now they're like, okay, let's open up the checkbook while the asset prices around the world are still relatively low. And it, it's a great opportunistic buy that if anybody's been kind of watching the oil market over the past several years, it's like, yeah, it's a really good time to be buying. So. Yeah, absolutely. And um, interesting what you were talking about earlier about the operating, uh, you know, the regulatory issues and tax issues in, in Europe and other parts of the world uh, not being as favorable. I know that they're refining. Um, which they've pared back recently is is actually one of the least profitable part, least profitable um, areas of the market for them compared to their peers. When conversely, their uh, their upstream um, is actually is one of the best, as you said. Yeah. Um, they also hold nineteen percent interest in Russian oil company Novatek. If anybody's interested in more <laughs> international in more exposure. international exposure, yeah. Um, so that's wonderful. Thank you very very much. I. Uh, love your recommendations. Brookfield, I think, is a great company. Uh, one thing to consider with them is that 90% of the, their portfolio has an average contract time of 17 years left. So, uh, people complain about their payer ratio being high, but you know, when you, when <laughs> you, when your when your revenue is contracted that far out, yeah, know, why not? Exactly. There's not many companies that can boast that. So, thank you so much, Taylor. Anything else left to add? I don't. Uh, I think I'm sorry. good. Well, uh, Taylor's on this show so often. He, I know, and I know. I'm he, so I sorry. I think when Sean was the head, was uh, hosting the program, I think he confused us at least once a month. So okay, I'm this is first power. time. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Tyler. Uh, that is it for us today. If you would like to get in touch, please feel free to email us at industryfocus@full.com or tweet us on Twitter at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Get in touch. Please feel free to email us at industryfocus.full.com or tweet us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Tyler, I'm Sarah Priestley. Thanks for listening and fall on. Fool on.